book of Ephesians, Paul wrote a letter to explain who we are and who we are, who we are, and what we have in Christ. At the time in history that Paul wrote this, Christians were on the run. Christians were on the run. Christians were on the run. They had no rights and they were in great danger. actually wrote this letter while on house arrest in Rome. And despite his circumstances, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus describing the fullness and richness of life in Christ. Paul knew that if the Ephesians understood who they were and began to live in Christ, the world would never be the same. The same can be true for today. If we understand what it means to live in Christ, if we understand what it means to live in Christ, if we understood what it meant to live in Christ, if we understand what it means to live in Christ, to be the church, our city and our world would never be the same. Never be the same. Would never be the same. Would never be the same. Would never be the same. therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this... He ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Father, as we open this passage this morning, we open it with a desire to know, but yet also knowing that we cannot fully understand all things. But God, we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to reveal yourself to us. We ask you to empower us by your Holy Spirit. We ask you to illuminate as much as is possible in this moment, in this time, that you would illuminate this passage for us. Lord, so that we could understand all got a gift. So that we could understand there's division of gifts. So that we could understand descend and ascend. And all that goes in that. 
Lord, redeem our time, glorify your name, and speak to us through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin with, you can find a lot of opinions on this passage. You can have people ask the question, he ascended, he descended, descended, what does that mean? Where does it talk about? And all of that. And it is a part of the passage. But so many times we get caught up into what we can explain that we miss exactly what he has told us and taught us and empowered us to do. So today, to the best of my ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to break this passage down and I believe can leave with some understanding knowing that full revelation probably will not come until that day that we are ascended into heaven where he is now. But how do we start? Well, we start with this, with the structure of the book of Ephesians. It is six chapters. We know that the first three tell us what to do. We know that the last three tell us how to do it. We know that in the first three, Paul gave us doctrine, instruction, truth. And then in 4, 5, and 6, he begins to give us application. In other words, what are my responsibilities as a follower of Christ? What is my instruction? What am I supposed to do? The scripture admonishes, admonishes us to clothe ourselves in Christ. And so Paul in 4, 5, and 6 is saying, get dressed, and this is what outfit I want you to put on this morning. So here we go as we begin to talk about it. So in chapter 4, the first thing that he does, he sets the tone in verse 1 when he says to us, walk worthy of the calling were which you were called. It is a guiding word. It's a word that leads us to the verses that follow. It's the word that means for us the way you should conduct your life. Now listen to me. I have opinions about how my life should go. I have opinions about what is good. I have opinions about what I like. I have opinions about how each day should conclude and all the interactions in that day should happen. But here's the truth. At the moment that I gave my life to Christ, I gave up that right to that. I said, Lord, it's not my day, but it's your day. It's not my will, but it's your will. Lord, it's not my definition of blessing. It's your definition of blessing. It's not my definition of instruction, but your definition. It's what I, what Paul said, um, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now, that's a paradox. It's, paradox is something that doesn't make sense. I live by dying. Wait a minute. I'm strong by being weak. I stand by kneeling and all of those things. And so Paul is beginning to construct for us some more and construct and actually destruct at the same time this paradox, this understanding of what it means to walk. So he says, first of all, I want you to walk. Now, go back with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, actually I'll start at 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. So he says there is a transition in your life with Christ. You were dead in trespasses, you were dead in sin, but through Christ you've been made alive. And he said when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, he said you once walked according to the course of this world. He said, you had a system you followed that did not please God. It did not honor God. And whether you like it or not, that's exactly how you walked. And now, in chapter 4, verse 1, 
He says, I don't want you to walk like you walked when you were dead in trespasses and sin. He said, I want you to walk as you are now, united, alive in Christ. And listen to me, that is an excellent barometer. It's an excellent gauge to salvation. If you see yourself walking, or catch yourself, walking as you've always walked before Christ, then you need to ask yourself the question, did you ever encounter Christ? Because he said there is a distinction. There is a difference. You've heard me tell you before. Always look at your life today, six months back, a year back, five years back, ten years back. Do you see maturity? Do you see growth? Do you see yourself falling in the same potholes, if you will, of life? Or do you see yourself growing in faith? Can you trust God today more than you did five years ago? Are you still struggling in the same spots? The scripture says he made you alive. And before Christ you walked this way. But in Christ you walked another way. So he tells us first of all, he says I want you to walk. And he says a good demonstration or a good check if you will. Or something to understand about walking is that there would be unity. Go back with me to chapter 4. He says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with gentleness and lowliness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, working hard, endeavoring to keep the unity. I love that he said we don't just all walk in the room and everybody's happy and everybody gets along. You know, in that song this morning, when they brought us together, bind us together, there was an action, an intentional action. It was an endeavoring to move together. You had to move yourself. You could not stay where you are and be close to the person that was next to you if there was a distance. You actually had to take steps. So what we have to do, what we did literally here, we have to symbolically do every day of our lives. We have to choose to walk toward people. Now I'm going to tell you something. I think that's a bad word. Because what Paul just told us to do to endeavor with unity sounds an awful lot like we've all got to be the same, look the same, act the same, talk the same, worship the same, sing the same, like preaching the same, serve God the same. And that's an ugly word in our society today because we are all about the individual. As I look around this room, I see bright colors, I see dark colors, I see light skin, I see dark skin. I see no hair. I see a lot of hair. I see a lot of different things that you like, and we enjoy being individuals. And we're going to see that Paul is not robbing us of our individuality. In fact, the whole point of this passage is, is that he's the one that made us unique. We're going to see that he's the one that gave to each one of us gifts purchased by Christ, delivered by the Holy Spirit to come together and have an arm, a hand, a foot, a leg, an eye, an ear, a nose, a mouth. And he said, what I want you to do is all come together in the individuality, but be united. Have y'all ever seen the conjoined twins, their sisters, and their, um, they have a reality show? And one of them controls the left side of the body and one controls the right side of the body. And they had to learn to work together, to walk, to drive, to, to do all of these things. Well, that's exactly what he is saying to us. We are conjoined by Christ. And if we don't endeavor to do it, then we're going to flail 
as a group of people. He said, but if we take the time to learn how to walk together, learn how to coordinate our movements, he said, what happens is something that defies explanation, defies amazement, and people go, wow, now that's a miracle. So Paul says to us, first thing I want you to do is walk worthy. Don't go back to where you used to be. If, if I brought you out of the ditch, don't run back to the ditch. Go live in the house. Then he says, I want you to do it united. And look, after he talks about that, he says, I'm going to give you these gifts. These gifts are what's, going to set, are what's going to set you apart. These gifts are what's going to give you an identity. These gifts are the thing that are going to allow you to be uniquely you, you to come together and be uniquely one and have an impact, make a difference on the body of Christ. We have missionaries that we support in, um, in Kenya. They work with the Maasai people. They went over there just to be missionaries. And they said, hey, God, we're available. Well, it went from being available and sharing the gospel to starting a church. The church went to starting a school. The school went to starting a home for children that were orphaned. The home for orphans grew into the need for a medical clinic. The medical clinic realized that these orphaned children somewhere had orphaned moms out there, if you will who were living in a lifestyle that was not what they wanted to be or they had fallen into and couldn't get out of it. And so now what they have done is they have started a rescue ministry for the moms that orphaned the children. With nothing but a purpose and a vision and a decision that making a difference for the cause of Christ, walking worthy of the calling, was worth effort and comfort. Sacrificing, though. Giving effort, sacrificing comfort. Choosing to be something different to make a difference. Paul says, I want you to walk united and I want you to use the gifts. Now, where do the gifts come from? Because that's an important Thing. We call them fruits of the Spirit or gifts of the Spirit. Um, a gift of the Spirit is delivered, it's purchased by Christ. It's delivered by the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? Gail needed a new watch band. She said, I need a new watch band. I thought to myself, a good husband would take that hint and he would order a watch band. I also recognized I didn't know how exactly to do that. So I did what I always do when it comes to Amazon.com. I called Robert. And I said, Robert, Gail wants a watch band. He said, what kind does she want? I said, I like the one you have on. He said, it's right here in my favorites. Let me go. I'll put it in my inbox and I'll buy it. So I purchased it. Robert delivered it. Gail gets the benefit because the two worked together. The Holy Spirit delivered what Christ purchased on the cross. He gave you the gift, but the Scripture is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit delivers it, and He chooses which package you get, by the way. But to you, now listen to me, this is an important distinction when we talk about gifts of the Spirit. A gift of the Spirit is a gift 
that is delivered. It's the mint on your pillow. You don't get it till you check into the room. You don't just have a gift of the Holy Spirit as an individual who's been born. You have talents. But your gift of the Holy Spirit comes at that moment that you have given your life to Christ. The moment that He comes into you. The moment that you receive Him. The moment that you say, Jesus, be my Savior, I bow to you. The Scripture says that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit consume you. And that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to give you that spiritual gift. Now, once you've been given that gift, the Scripture says to endeavor to walk. In other words, you've got to develop that gift. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes you saying, God, here I am, and I want to do it. I want to be yours. I want to be used by you. So that's what Paul's teaching us. So as we begin to go through this outline, the person who provides the gift is who? Jesus. He is the one that provided it. He purchased it. Let's go back to verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I do not know why Paul put this in here, the next part of it. And to be honest with you, for preaching purposes, I wish he had left it out. Because it is one of those things in Scripture that you can, for every theologian you find, you will find probably a different opinion. But I think there are some truths that we can know and that we can nail down and then some that we'll look and say, the Lord's going to tell me when I get to glory. So let's read it. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's how we know they came from Christ. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended. Far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So it's mentioned twice. It's ascended, descended, descended, ascended. So what are some truths that that we know that we can know beyond any shadow of a doubt? Well, in the idea of descended, we can go to John chapter 1 verse 14 where it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Christ left the the ooh of heaven for earth. He left heaven, came to earth, was born of a virgin, Lived a sinless life. He descended from heaven to earth. Now, we can also understand the ascended part of it in some basic pieces to it. Meaning that in the ascension, in the exaltation, at that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, that moment when after he was resurrected, after he walked on the earth following his resurrection, it says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But then you got that one little phrase in there that is the curveball. And the one phrase in that curveball is, what does it mean when it says, um, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above. Where is it at? No, I'm sorry, let me go up one to verse 9. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? That's the curve. That's the where people 
get confused or theologians disagree on it. And I think to understand this, you have to go back to, let me answer, let me time out. I'm going to answer the why really quick for you because I didn't answer the why. I mean, it's, I got the descended. He came from heaven to earth. Why? 1 John 3, 5, and 8 says this, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Verse 8 of 1 John chapter 3 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So he descended to appear, to save, to defeat Satan. Now, it says that he also, when he descended... He descended to the lower parts of the earth. I think that's where we got to go back. we got to pick up the Old Testament, and we've got to begin to ask ourselves some questions. Well, when you get to the Old Testament, there's a place called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, and Sheol is sometimes translated hell, but it literally means the place of the dead. Now, if you took it and you just did a word study from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, you would understand that when the Bible talks about Sheol, the place of the dead, there's a place of judgment and there's a place of blessing. So those who died prior to Christ, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that, those who died before that but were believers, and the Scripture says they looked forward to the promise, right? Those who were counted as righteous, that's your Abraham, your Isaac, your Jacob, your Ruth, your David, your Esther, those people. Those people who believed it, looked forward to it, and knew it was coming and lived as if it already was. They were in a place, that second compartment known as paradise or Abraham's bosom. Is what the Bible will call that. That's a place of blessing. Those who died without believing that were unbelievers, they went to a place, Sheol, Hades, a place of judgment. So the scripture says that Christ... What would he have done except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? Most theologians, many theologians, you can find a strong school of thought for this, that in his descension, he did go to Sheol. He ripped open the gates of death, and he says that he led captive, captivity captive. In other words, those who looked forward to the promise, those who believed, he Hustle them up. You know how it is when your kids are outside and there's a storm coming and they're out there playing and it's about to thunder and it's about to lightning, lightning and you run out there and you go, hey kids, come on in the house. Come on, come on, come on. Well, he gathered them up and he went with them, led them to paradise, to heaven. Now, we go back and where is it in the book of Luke? Why do, how do I kind of get this thought in my mind, if you will? In Luke 23, 43... Jesus, talking to the thief on the cross, said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Abraham's bosom, that place of holding prior to the promise being delivered. He says, that's where you're going to be. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So prior to Jesus, by the way, Jesus did not go to hell to suffer a greater. His suffering ended at his death. When he died, the suffering was over. At that moment, the price was paid. So when he descended to paradise, he took with him the thief on the cross. He gathered up all those other people that believed before the promise, and he took them there. So before the death, burial, and resurrection, 
If you died as a believer, you were there in paradise. But now, in the church age, in the age of the resurrected Christ, ascended at the Father, interceding for you at the right hand of God, you don't go there. That's been defeated. You now ascend to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's where you are. So he's talking here. He's telling people. He's helping them understand something. I have done something for you on the cross. I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the cross. You have heaven to look forward to. For those that came before you, I have gone and gotten them. I have set them free. They are released. They are in heaven with God. They're there. But for you who remain, I've given you some gifts. And that's your individuality. And I want you as individuals to make a strong, strong choice. To not be body parts strewn about the lawn, but to be a conjoined group of people who learn how to walk together, talk together, sing together, worship together, serve together, love together, cry together, laugh together, share life together. He said, because in Christ there is a new race. And that race is going to reflect the wonder of heaven. And that identity that you have is Jesus. And it is stronger than anything else that can pull on you and divide you if you will endeavor to walk in the unity of the Spirit. You see, I won't do it by myself. But at that moment that I cry out, and isn't it interesting, Paul will not get away from unity. Do you think he wants us to be united? Do you think he's driving home a point? Do you think that he's making a point over and over and over again? It's almost like he's saying, I'll quit preaching about it when y'all get it. And when you get it, we'll move on to the next thing. He says, I gave you gifts. Now, isn't it human nature to stand up and say, what'd you get? Oh, you got service? Thanks to be you. Oh, you got singing. Man, you're amazing. Jesus had to love you more. Or you got the gift of this or the gift of that or gift of whatever. And by the way, some have the gift of giving. Just a thought. If you got it, use it. (laughs) Don't be ashamed of it. But listen to me. He says, I've given you these gifts. Let's go back and read. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he left captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this he did, and he gave some to be. Now, he's taken us from walk, unity, and I've given you gifts. He's told us who the person who provides the gifts is. Say it with me, Jesus. Who provides the gift? Jesus. Okay. Now, now he's going to talk to us about the people who are charged with developing the gifts. we got to go to verse 8 here. Let's drop down to verse 8 and the last part of it. He gave gifts to men. Now, first of all, wonderful passage to have at this point in time. Does that mean girls got no gifts? That's terrible English, but you know what I mean, right? That is not what it means. 
That is men in the context of humanity. And he gave gifts to humanity. He gave gifts to people. It's a terrible theology to build on one word as you understand it in the English language. He gave gifts to people. So ladies, you are gifted. Yes, you are. You got them as well. Now, drop down to verse 11 because we, it's almost like verse 9 and 10 are parenthetical a little bit. So if you go from 8c, he gave gifts to men, down to 11 where he says, and he gave some to be. Now this is interesting because if we went to the book of Romans or we went to the book of 1 Corinthians or if we went to 1 Peter and looked at the gifts, the different gifts that God gave, they would be gifts that he gave to an individual for the individual to develop to use inside the body of Christ. But he says one gift that he gives to the entire church, you know how that is at Christmas, like you look under the Christmas tree and there's two Joy or two Mike or two Rodney and then if y'all's mom's like my mom, then there was one like to all the kids. That was like usually a game or something that she saw at the last minute and she thought, I don't know who to give it to, so I'll just write everybody on there. Well, that's what he did. Under the spiritual gift tree, if you have named the name of Christ, you got a present. It says, to you, from Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the hander out of the gifts. But then, he's also telling us that there are some gifts that he gave to the whole church. And these are people. Now look at it. He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. He gave some the gift of evangelism. And some pastor teacher, by the way, that's one gift, pastor teacher, all right? For the, and then why did he give it to them? For the equipping of the saints. So he gave some gifts to the whole church, some people as gifts to the whole church, for the purpose of instructing, teaching, guarding, protecting, delivering. Now, as we break down that, the first set that he said was apostles and prophets. To understand that one, go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That was a gift at a particular time in the life of the church to lay down the foundation for everybody that would follow. It is not wrong to use the title apostle. It is not wrong to use the title prophet. But it is wrong to use the words a tie of apostle and prophet if you're referring to it as in the same way of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Paul. That is a gift that was. And there was some prerequisite, apostle and prophet, there was some prerequisite for that. You had to be what? An eyewitness. You had to see it. Paul got a unique vision of it on the road to Damascus. He was not like the others. And so he says, to some, I gave this gift. Why did I give them this gift? Because I wanted the church to have a solid foundation based on what an eyewitness saw, that the foundation would be nothing other than the, the blood of Christ 
and his righteousness that he came, he was born, he lived without sin, he died, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven. Ascended to heaven. He says, that was back there. If somebody stands up today and says, I'm an apostle in the sense of the apostles of the New Testament, run fast. Because that means they're getting new revelation and they're adding to something that has already been historically completed. He says, to some, I gave them to be apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says, for you've got a good foundation. You don't want to crack in your foundation. Then if we keep reading, what was the next one? He said, some prophets, sorry, we talked about those two, some evangelists. Evangelism is a gift. Billy Graham was an evangelist. Billy Graham could stand up, go anywhere in the world for three days, preach one message, Jesus born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus rose again. And people from all cultures, with all languages, all backgrounds, all nationalities, all socioeconomic and education levels would come running and say, I want Jesus. Very, very few people have that gift. But there are people that God places inside the church who have it. I know people with it. I have met people with it. There have been people in this church, and there are people in this church who can share the gospel, and people say, I want to be saved. I want Christ. If you have that gift, don't be afraid of it. Use it. Use it often. And don't even be shocked when people start accepting Christ because it is your gift. Now, the rest of you are probably wiping a sweated brow going, I don't have that gift. I don't have to share the gospel. Because what did Paul tell Timothy? Go and do the work of an evangelist. You may not be the one that stands up, shares the gospel, and hordes of people come to Christ. But that does not excuse you from being ready to stand up and give a witness to the work that Christ has done in you. You say, well, what if nobody comes to Christ? Not your problem. That's God's business. You just simply have to be the one that says, this is Jesus and this is what he did and this is what he wants to do for you. And you tell your story. Now, he tells us that some are given to be apostles and prophets. That's not an active gift. Some are to be evangelists. That is an active gift. And then he says that some are to be pastors and teachers. This is a specific office in the church. It's an office that I hold at this time. It's, um, it's what God called me to be. What kind of work does a pastor teacher do? It's instructional work. It's to instruct you how to understand Scripture. Ultimately, it's not to be one that only delivers Scripture to you, but teaches you how to break down Scripture so that you can study it for yourself. I have the task. As in this office, this role of guarding the theology of the church. Now, it doesn't mean exclusively I do that. Because each one of us can have that role. We have teachers that teach in other capacities. We have people that, that lead in other capacities. But in this role, that's what it's saying. Is that you instruct, you study, you understand. You endeavor to know what the Scripture is teaching it. You understand the climate of the church. And you deliver the message that exhorts, encourages, and admonishes the church to move forward. It also means that, again, that you guard against false teaching. 
You guard against loose theology. You stand in front of the church. You're the first responder. That's why the scripture would say, pray for. Pray over. That's why you want to pray for your ministry staff. Because they step in front of things that if we've done our job well, most times you will be shielded from it before you ever get here on Sunday. So pray for them. It is a role. It is an office. It is a purpose. It is what we do. He also says in their, let's see, equipping of the saints. He tells us why we do, why he assigned these to equip. Now, my grandmother cooked three meals a day, seven days a week. My grandfather walked into the house, sat down at the table, never fixed his, I think if he, she would have chewed it and swallowed it if it would have done him any good. But she poured his tea. She put everything on his plate. She did all of those things. She did not equip him to live without her. And so it would be easy for us to spoon feed you, but we don't want to be my mama. We want to teach you how to live on your own in case God relocates you to a place that we are not. And that's why he says you have to endeavor. Because I'm going to tell you, it's, an already made sandwich tastes better than the one you have to get up and go into the kitchen and get yourself. They really do. But it is not practical. You got to learn to make your own Jesus sandwich. That's just a fact. You got to learn where to keep the bread. You got to learn where the mayonnaise and the condiments and the meat and the t- all that stuff. Because one day you're going to have it in your life. And I'll give you a good example. I was somewhere yesterday. And there was a conversation taking place. And one of the people that was in that conversation, I do not believe they were comfortable in that conversation. But they did not feel equipped to change, alter, or refute the conversation. So it's my job to train you. It's our job to train you. Parents and grandparents, guess what? It's your job to teach your children. They will not like all of your disciplines. But like is not the goal of parenting. Because just as I am pastor teacher at Mount Zion Baptist Church, the scripture says you are pastor teacher in your home. Men and ladies. Men, you have the primary charge to do that so Paul has said to this I want you to walk I want you to walk in unity as a body but I want you to bring your individuality to the table so that the church can meet the needs of the community around it he says now I'm not just going to throw you out there because I've got some people that I've equipped along the way to teach you to instruct you to walk with you. And the purpose is this. Go look at verse 12. Again. Where he says. For the equipping of the saints. For. Work of ministry. 
That means when you unite with the body of Christ, that you are here to do the work of ministry. And by the way, if you don't come join and connect with the body of Christ and actively attend and, and intentionally engage, have you ever just thought you're like a leg laying out in the yard? Connected to nothing? Doing no good? But when the leg bone gets connected to the hip bone, sure, you can run all over the place. Have you ever wondered why you're floundering in your walk? You could be dismembered. Not kicked out of the church, don't hear that. Just not connected to the church. He says, for the work of ministry, now look, he says another thing to us. He says, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to build it up, to make it more, to make it more influential, to make it more significant, to make it more, have more strength. And then he tells us how long we're supposed to do that. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a song that says, we'll work till Jesus comes. That's what he just told the church. He says, how long am I supposed to do this? Is it a one-month commitment? Is it a three-month commitment? Is it a five-year commitment? When I hit 60, can I just stop doing it? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what he said. He said, I gave you this. You formerly walked this way. I gave you every spiritual blessing that you could ever need, want, or imagine to bring you into the body of Christ so that you could walk in a new life. And in that new life, you walk united. In that unity, you, you bring your individuality. And in your individuality, you learn how to walk with God so that you can work in the church, equip the saints, and you do it till Jesus comes. Go, Paul. That's what he said. Thank you.